What's going on, guys? Welcome back to The Control Room. I'm your host, Israel Johannes. There's a give and take when it comes to being a graphics AP. Always benefits and drawbacks. The consequences of being the graphics AP means, well, yes, I can build out the graphics. I can research these stats. I can find things that I have that have more access to than the general public. But to actually build the graphics means I'm on a computer, on a program that I can construct these graphics, but my eyes are more, they're looking more at the graphics and making sure that it's correct rather than the actual game. Sometimes I'll be able to peek back and forth, but time spent building graphics and making sure that those are correct is time spent away from actually watching the game. So there are other people in the control room who can pick up on certain things like how the offense is moving or how the defense is holding certain opponents. Whereas I'll be able to look at it from a statistical perspective and I can fill in the gaps there. They help fill in the gaps on the video side. Especially when you're solo, when you don't have a graphics operator with you, even more time is spent making sure the graphics are good. Now we have access to replays and highlights and, and more content of that nature, but watching it in real time, you're seeing everything unfold all at once at the same time as everyone else. So not being able to do that in real time can be a drawback for those of us who probably spend the least amount of time actually watching the game as it happens but we can at least fill in that context with, with stats. The thing about actually recording the stats is that they reflect what's already been done. They don't show exactly how teams got to those stats. So let's say a three-point attempt for the Mavs, it doesn't exactly show you how someone was able to create a three-point attempt. It just shows that there was a three-point attempt doesn't show how there was a screen in the middle of the paint and let's say Grant Williams was able to come off that screen and open himself up in the corner and then that led to a corner three. The stat will only show that he shot a corner three. So stats don't show the, they don't tell the whole story, but they provide context as a piece to the whole story. So you need every single piece of the, of this puzzle and the more that graphics APs like myself are willing to allow for that room for people to know, yeah, we can't give you everything, but we can at least give you something that helps notate exactly what happened. There will at least be others who can, if it's not us, there will be others who can provide more context, especially on the video side and the analysis side where that helps paint the big picture for a specific team, for a specific game, and so on and so forth. So for the Mavs, let's break down their last three games. November 22nd, they went to Crypto.com Arena in Los Angeles, and they played the Lakers, beat them 104-101. to The Mavs won the fast break and turnover battles, but they blew a 20-point lead in the fourth quarter. However, Kyrie ended up winning the game for the Mavs in that fourth quarter. Following that game was a game against the Clippers, so the Mavs did not leave L.A. On November 25th, they got blown out and lost to the Clippers 107-88. The Mavs scored a season-low 88 points, and they were missing Derek Lively the second due to a lower back contusion, and the Mavs ended up getting out-rebounded by 20. However, they came back home, and November 28th, an in-season tournament game against the Houston Rockets, they spoiled the Houston Rockets' in-season tournament hopes. Had the Rockets won, they would have clinched West Group B in the IST. That did not happen. The Mavs won 121-115. to Luka dropped 41-9-9, and while Dirk was on the sideline on the Valley Sports Southwest broadcast. Derek Lively also came back, and the Mavs won back-to-back clutch games after losing their previous, really their only clutch loss beforehand. So now uh, now that I've explained how the graphics AP has to put things together and how 
they can't always see everything. How can we at least present these stats to you? How does a producer in graphics AP present these stats? Like I've asked that question every week so far. Again, we look for trends compared to last season. Now we do that if it's applicable because we are getting closer to that first quarter of the season where, especially when the roster has a lot of turnover, you might not need to use last season as a as a point of emphasis anymore. But when it's applicable, you can still use it. Second, the points of contention from the last several weeks, such as rebounds, three-pointers, free throw percentage, second chance points, points in the paint, fast break points, and clutch games. Remember, not all of them have to be improved, but they have to at least help each other to help win games. And then third, establish new trends and identify new and or recurring problems by finding stats that demonstrate the current identity of the team. So for that first game, the Mavs at the Lakers, what stood out? The Lakers were on a second night of a back-to-back after blowing out the Utah Jazz at home 131-99, and that was an in-season tournament game. In the first three quarters, the Mavs shot 35 of 77, which was 45.5% from the floor. Um, and from two, it was 20 of 37, which was 54.1%. And then from three, it was, they shot 15 of 40, which was 37.5%. So from two, they generated 40 points off of those 20 made field goals. And then from three, they generated 45 points off of 15 made field goals throughout those first three quarters. That will play a role into how the fourth quarter came about because the inclination of the Mavs is to shoot more threes because three is more than two. And if you can shoot well enough from three, you can justify taking more attempts from three and so far the Mavs have been hot enough to justify shooting from three something to keep in mind that since Derek Lively left in the in the third quarter the Mavs were plus one in rebounding in the first three quarters at 38 to 37 and then along the miscellaneous categories they scored 32 points in the paint 13 second chance points 18 fast break points and 15 points off turnovers then the fourth quarter happened. So Derek Lively left the game in the third quarter with the lower back contusion, did not return in this game. The Mavs scored 13 points, which was a season low in any quarter. First, second, third, fourth, didn't matter. If it was a quarter, they didn't score 13 or less until this game. All 13 of those points came from Kyrie, who had seven, and Luka, who had six. In the paint, the Mavs shot two for five, 40%. But outside the paint, within the two-point range, the Mavs shot 0 for 4. From the floor as a whole, they shot three of 19, which was 15.8%. The three field goals made were a season low in any quarter. So historically bad odds for the Mavs in this quarter. They just went really cold. From three, remember they shot 15 of 40 going into the quarter. They own, they shot one of 10. All right, that's 10%. Season low, three-point field goals made in the fourth quarter, in any fourth quarter. Tied a season low, three-point field goals made in any quarter. And their 10% was a season low three-point percentage in any fourth quarter. And the second lowest three-point percentage in any quarter this season. So they went ice cold. And then on the rebounding side, they were out-rebounded 14-10 in the fourth quarter. Remember, they entered the fourth quarter with a plus-one advantage, 38-37. And then in the miscellaneous categories, it was pretty empty. They scored only four points in the paint, and they entered with 32. Zero second-chance points and entered the fourth quarter with 13. Zero fast-break points entered the fourth quarter with 18. And two points off turnovers entered the fourth quarter with 15. So everything just went cold. It wasn't just the shooting. It was everything on the miscellaneous side, the rebounding, everything kind of fell apart in the fourth quarter until Kyrie happened. Kyrie hit the Mavs' only three-point field goal of the fourth quarter. Remember, they shot one for 10. It was Kyrie's one, and it was the last one they attempted. So they went 0 for 9 in the fourth quarter until Kyrie made the 
game-winning shot. Or at least the go-ahead shot because they, he made a couple free throws after that. Dallas, speaking of free throws, Dallas actually shot six of eight from the free throw line in the fourth quarter alone. Going into the fourth quarter, they only shot six of eight, so they didn't get to the line as much until that last frame. And it ended up being the Mavs' seventh clutch win this season, which gave them a 7-1 and one clutch record. So the Mavs' advantages in this game, they had a fast break point advantage, 18-6, to six, points off turnovers advantage, 17-4. to four. So at least in the miscellaneous categories throughout the entirety of the game, they look like they're doing a great job. They might have some dry spells here and there, especially in that fourth quarter, and that's not one that you want to have all the time, but this was a historically bad shooting quarter. I don't expect to see that very often. And really the, the nine threes missed was a microcosm of how the Mavs felt going into that quarter. They felt like they could shoot the ball and it just wasn't going in. So they were probably thinking, okay, we can keep shooting it because we've been making it so far. Eventually one will go in. One just didn't go in. Where that balance is, since I'm not a professional athlete, that's up to them in, across the shooters and across the coaching staff as to how they would adjust to the plan once they start seeing five or more threes get missed. But it started getting to a point where the Lakers were cutting into that lead a bit too tight and they were still shooting threes, the Mavs were. Had they had more success inside, they had more success in the paint that was probably the only zone that would have helped them a little bit more. So for the Mavs, at least they can learn from that experience now that they've gotten that win. Didn't exactly happen in the next game, but before we get there, I do want to bring up that Josh Green had a season-high 15 points. And so Josh, Josh actually hit a career-high 29 points last season. So he's shown flashes that he's been improving. He has improved his stats year over year over year since since he was drafted in 2020. But with the way that the roles have changed, the roster turnover, he still has to find his new role within the system. And in this game, he was able to be the third double-digit score for the Mavs. He had a plus 19, plus minus through the first three quarters, which is actually really good. Although he was a minus nine in the fourth, didn't attempt a field goal, and only played about two minutes and 40 seconds. So for him to be on the floor for two minutes and 40 seconds and the Lakers to score nine points, or at least to have a differential of minus nine, it's not an indictment on Josh Green. It's just a stat that is on on the sheet. It was He was minus nine in the fourth quarter. A lot of, really many of the Mavs had a, bad plus minus in the fourth quarter. It's just one thing to note how well he had played up into that point. And then the fact that the Mavs didn't do so well in the fourth reflected on everyone's stats there, but season high 15 for Josh Green. So shout out to the young kid from Sydney, Australia. Next, let's go to the Mavs Clippers game. The Clippers were on a second night of a back to back after losing at home 116 to 106 to the Pelicans. Why does this matter? The Mavs had two days off between the Lakers and Clippers games. So on paper, the Mavs had a bigger advantage because they had more rest. They didn't have to travel. Whereas the Clippers were coming on a second night of a back-to-back. It's hard to win the second game when you've already gotten beat up in the first game. That was not the case this time for the Clippers. In the first quarter, the Mavs got outscored by... LA, 29-18. The Mavs shot 7 of 25, which was 28% from the floor, 5 of 15 from 2, only a third, 33.3%, and 2 for 10 from 3. Only 20% from 3. That's not a characteristic of the Mavs. They tend to not miss that many. But they did in this first quarter. They were also out-rebounded 17-8, and in the miscellaneous scoring categories the Mavs scored zero bench points two paint points and were out, they were outscored 20 to 2 in the first quarter in the paint alone that's too big a gap and they scored only zero 
only zero. They scored zero fast break points. So that first quarter was one to forget. In the second quarter, the Mavs shot 10 of 15 from two, 66.7%, and seven of seven from the free throw line. So they had more success offensively, except from three, because they shot 0 for six. Now that three-point rate was actually really low, considering the Mavs attempted 21 field goals and only six of them came from three. So the Mavs were able to at least match the Clippers with 27 points scored in the second quarter. And that, had they played better in the first quarter, or at least had they made more and converted more opportunities in the first quarter, this would have been a tighter game going into the half because of how well the Mavs were playing inside in the second quarter. The Mavs scored 12 paint points and had zero turnovers in that quarter as well. So really, that was... That was a testament to how the Mavs could rebound. They not actually rebound, but come back from a bad quarter. But they couldn't chip into the lead because the Clippers matched that scoring total as well. In the third, there was another disparity. Not as big as the first, but still they were outscored by the Clippers 23 to 17. And the Mavs fell back into their shooting woes, shooting only 7 of 24, just 29.2% from the floor. 4 for 12 from 2, and 3 for 12 from 3. They scored 0 points off of 5 Clipper turnovers, and they didn't attempt a free throw. So that's when you know you're just having a bad night. Because after going 7 of 7 in the second quarter, not being able to attempt one in the third, not being able to convert from 2, from 3, and even when you are... when when you forced a turnover, you still can't score. Nothing is going right. So... As Devin Harris said on the post-game show, this was more of a throwaway game. You don't really think about this one because nothing went right. It's not something that is going to sustain the Mavs from game to game to game to game. It's not something that they should be worried about. It was just one off night. But there is something that I want to show with the scoring of it all, right? The Mavs only scored 88 points in this game. The Mavs had three double-digit scores for the second straight game, and that's not necessarily great unless all three guys score 30. When you only have three guys score 10 or more, right? Luca had 30, Kyrie had 26, Tim Hardaway Jr. had 12. NBA teams this season are 6-22 and 22 in games when they only have three or fewer double-digit scores. And all time, the Mavs are 143 and 353 in games with three or fewer double-digit scores. Now, this season, they're 1-1. One one. Their win happened to be that Lakers game where only Luka, Kyrie, and Josh Green were the double-digit scores. But that game was almost blown. So it's statistically showing that you want more guys being able to score at a more efficient clip, one, but also to have more guys that can have that offensive firepower so that you can win games. If you can only lean on three guys at a time, three guys every game, to do all the scoring for you, you're going to have a bad time. It's not like the Mavs intentionally try to do that, but it's just something to look out for. Next up, the Rockets game at home. It was an in-season tournament game, and Houston needed this win to clinch West Group B. Dallas had already been eliminated at this point, so they were basically playing spoiler. Derek Lively II somehow returned from a lower back contusion, so he didn't miss extended time. Great for the Mavs because they absolutely missed him, especially after being out-rebounded in the first quarter of the Clippers game 17-8. They really needed their tall defensive rebounding anchor. In this game, Derek Lively had eight points, shot four for four from the floor, had five rebounds, two assists, and two blocks in 27 minutes and 48 seconds. So a good return from him, and he was very effective on, on the plays where he didn't have the ball, where he was setting screens and the pick and roll and so on. There, the pick and roll is something we'll get into in a little bit. But Derek Lively made his presence felt on the floor. And again, stats reflect what's already been done. So if Derek Lively changes a shot, it's not like, let's say he didn't block it, but he forced the offensive player to think, oh, he might block it, so I'm going to have to change how I finish at the rim, and then that leads to a miss. 
Lively's not going to get attributed to that. It won't show it on the box score, but on video clips, watching the game naturally, that's what you see as Derek Lively impacts the game. But let's talk about what did go on the stat sheet. Luka Doncic had 41 points, 15 of 29 shooting from the floor, nine rebounds, nine assists, and zero turnovers. Now, this became a circulating stat as soon as it happened. Luka became the first player in NBA history with 40 points, nine rebounds, nine assists, and zero turnovers in a game. To keep this into perspective, player turnovers were was first recorded in 1983-1984. So it doesn't obviously go all the way back to the beginning of the NBA in 1946. But since the stat was recorded, Luka's the only person to, to have the stat line. The Mavs also scored 50 points in the paint, which is kind of high for them. It tied their fifth most this season, and it, be, it was their eighth game this season with 50 or more paint points. Luka contributed to those 50 by scoring 18 points on 9 of 11 shooting within the paint. That's 81.8%, so highly efficient inside. And as I've talked about the pick and roll and how Luka penetrated the defense of Houston, Dallas and Houston each had below a 40% three-point rate. Now, for Dallas, that's not normal. This was the first time this season that Dallas and their opponent each shot below 40% three-point rate in a game. And because it came off a loss, Dallas is now 5-1 and one this season in those games following a loss. It was also a clutch win, which is their second straight clutch win after losing their only clutch game prior to the Lakers game. And their 8-1 and one clutch start is the best start through their first nine clutch games in franchise history, at least for any season. So lots of stuff to go through, all right? Luka targeted Fred Van Vliet and Alperen Sengun through the pick and roll. And so I'm going to attribute this to Josh Bowe, I believe I'm saying his name right, of MavsMoneyBall.com. In his article, he talked about how Luca used the pick and roll to create switches and mismatches and how he utilized the paint more often than he had done this season. It kind of went back to the first few years of Luca after Dirk had retired where he was able to take advantage of certain mismatches. For the Clippers, he would do that to Zubats a lot. But in this situation, now that Van Vliet is a smaller guard and he's with Houston and Shingun had a mobility that Doncic could attack, that's what he went with. So the way that Shingun was playing coverage in the pick and roll, he was primarily using drop coverage, at least in the clips that were provided by Josh in the article. And it's similar to how I had thought that Chicago would attack Derek Lively II because of how DeMar DeRozan and Zach Levine play in the mid-range and they shoot more often from the mid-range than most other teams. So with Luka, I want to point to one specific basket that he made in triple coverage because normally when you see triple coverage, you're going to kick it out to the wing and that's, that's how these mismatches happen. This basket tied the game at 92 with 8.44 left in the fourth quarter. Fred Van Vliet ended up being the primary defender on Luka because Dylan Brooks, who had been guarding Luka throughout the game, switched with Van Vliet when Luka and Kyrie had a screen. They did an off-ball pick and roll from the paint. So Luka escaped from the paint, the Rockets switched, and then Luka was at the top of the key Derek Lively passed the ball to Luca, and then Luca took over from there. So he had Van Vliet on his back. And then as Luca was getting closer to the paint, Alpen and Shengun became the pick and roll defender in drop coverage. And then as Luca finished at the paint, Jabari Smith Jr. was the weak side help, trying to come over and block the shot or at least affect the shot. But at that point, Luca 
had already let go of the ball. So it was too late for the Rockets, and he ended up, Luca ended up tying the game. So those are the those are the types of clips that I talk about when I can't watch, but I'm building the stats and I can see it on the stat sheet on the box score. But how it came about is something that you have to actually look for within the game. And so people like Josh are able to write these things down and take note of how a team plays offensively and defensively. And then there are people within the control room who are taking note, especially the analysts. They'll say, they'll say to the EVS operator, let's look at how the Mavs are attacking or how Luca's attacking these specific defenders. And that can be the difference between winning or losing a game. This ended up being a clutch game and the Mavs won that one because of how they attacked Houston defensively. And this is just one example of that. So shout out to Josh. Um, I will link his article in the description so that you guys can read and watch it as well. It's an interesting read and I enjoyed it. Next up, we will talk about the New Orleans Pelicans and the Oklahoma City Thunder and break down their week five because they both had some exciting games as well. And there's a return like CJ McCollum that we're going to break down. That's next. Okay, let's start off with the New Orleans Pelicans, who won four of their last six games. Their three-point defense has been a point of contention that I've raised over the last couple of weeks. So we'll talk about how well they've held their opponents in those six games. The first two against Sacramento. In that first game, the Kings shot 11 of 45, which is 24.4% from three. And that was a 129-93 win for New Orleans. The next game, New Orleans won that as well, 117-112, to 112, so a little bit tighter because the Kings were no longer on a second night of a back-to-back. They had a little bit of rest, and the Kings shot better from three. They shot 15-44, of 44, which was 34.1%. Pelicans still came out with a win. The Pels' next game was against the Clippers, and the Clippers shot 11-37, of 37, which was 29.7%, so they've held an opponent to under 30% twice across those three games. And the Pels won 116-106. to 106. Then came the hard part, guarding Utah. Utah shot 15-43, of 43, which was 34.9% from three, and the Pels lost 105-100. to 100. Then in the second game against Utah, the Jazz shot 17-48, of 48, which was 35.4%, 3-point FG. That was a 114-112 loss. And then they played Philadelphia at home, and Philly shot 14 of 34, which was 41.2% from three. That was the best three-point field goal percentage in the last six games for a Pelicans opponent. But the Pels ended up winning 124 to 114. That mainly had to do with the fact that Joel Embiid was a late scratch due to an illness, so he did not play in that game. But the Pelicans' three-point defense is still something to take note of. Throughout their 19 games, Their opponent three-point field goal percentage on three-point field goal attempts by quarter. In the first quarter was 31.5% on 10.7 attempts. In the second quarter, it drops again to 26.3% on 11 attempts. And that has been consistent as I've followed this stat. This this next part has also been consistent, where in the third quarter, Pell's opponents have shot 38.2% on 8.9 attempts. And then in the fourth quarter, 35.6% on nine and a half attempts. Now in the last five games, the Pels have allowed 45.5% three-point FG or better in four of those last five games. So what Nancy Lieberman was talking about when she was analyzing the Pels on one of the Pels live post games was For a team, let's say like the Jazz when they shot 17 of 48, to have 48 attempts from three means that you're not beating the Jazz off the line. You're not forcing them to run to the basket. You're not forcing them to make different decisions other than I'm open, I'll take a three. So when you look at that three-point attempt number for Pell's opponent, that will signify whether or not 
it was the Pels game plan to let that team shoot threes or if they were trying to get them off the line. Sometimes they try to get them off the line and it just doesn't work. They, the, the Pels don't get to that spot in time and the opponent may take advantage of that. But it's a point of contention that they have to address from time to time if they lose games. If they win and it's tight, they can use that as improvement, so on and so forth. But remember, they were on a five-game losing streak before this. So it's good to see the Pels win four of six and to be successful in certain areas of their defense. Again, part of that has to do with the return of Herbert Jones, who came back from injury November 14th versus the Mavericks. The Pelicans are 5-3 and three in their last eight games, and all three of those losses were clutch losses, so somewhat winnable games. And the Pelicans, across those eight games, are scoring 118.2 points per game, which is ninth in the NBA in that span. And before November 14th, the Pels were shooting or were scoring, excuse me, 109.1 points per game, which was 26th in the NBA through November 14th, or at least before November 14th. And in the last eight games, the Pels have shot 50.1% from the floor. That's fifth in the NBA. They are assisting 30.1 times. So they have 30.1 assists per game. And that's first in the NBA. And then they also have 9.9 steals per game, which is also first in the NBA. So they are improving those stats where they're sharing the ball more when they have more healthy guys. Jose Alvarado has been one that has come up in the lineup. And even now, CJ McCollum is back, who we'll get to in just a second. The more guys that are healthy for the Pelicans, on top of Zion Williamson and Brandon Ingram, so on and so forth, the more guys that step up like Jordan Hawkins and Dyson Daniels, the more loaded this team is. And it's showcasing in the assists because to have an assist, it's not just a pass, it's a finished bucket, whether it's from two at the layup um, or from three. An assist means points are scored and a teammate helped you. Now let's talk about the return of CJ McCollum. He has returned from a collapsed right lung as of Wednesday versus the Philadelphia 76ers, and he hadn't played a game since November 4th versus the Atlanta Hawks. Now, on November 29th versus Philly, he scored 20 points on 7 of 16 shooting, shot 3 of 8 from 3, had 4 rebounds, 5 assists, 2 steals, 1 block, and played 28 minutes. So it was good to see CJ on the floor because a collapsed right lung is nothing to scoff at. That's a serious injury. As Jen Hill reported when the news first broke, it was a milder collapsed lung compared to the one he suffered in Portland, and so his recovery time was a lot shorter. But he played well. He looked like he didn't miss a beat, as David Wesley said in Pelicans Live in the postgame. So for the Pelicans, again, as I've said, they can be one of the best teams in the West as long as they stay healthy and as long as they stay effective, scoring and playing defense. And this team is looking primed to make a run as soon as they can get Trey Murphy back from that, from that knee injury because he's another three-point threat that can help out Jordan Hawkins and Brandon Ingram and C.J. McCollum and other players who can really shoot from three. Now let's talk about the Oklahoma City Thunder, who lost their last two games after a six-game win streak. Now, it's great to see the Thunder have a six-game win streak. The two games that they lost were also clutch losses, so it's not like they got blown out or they're missing a step. The Thunder are looking really good. Most of that has to do with Shea Gilgis-Alexander, again, who we talked about last week, but we're going to talk about more right now. In his last eight games, he scored 32.3 points per game, shot 55.8% from the floor, and is shooting 42.3% from three, still shooting 97% from the free throw line, as he did last week when I checked his games over a certain period, and is recording five rebounds, 5.9 assists, and two and a half steals per game over those last eight games. This season, he is scoring 30 and a half points per game, so he's elevated his points per game. He's now fifth in the NBA. He leads the league with 2.4 steals per game, still has the most drives per game at 21. The next most is now De'Aaron Fox, who's at 18 and a half from the Sacramento Kings. And Shea is fifth in the NBA in paint points per game at 14.8, 
And he's also fifth in the NBA in fast break points per game, which is 4.3. So he's a one-man machine who is really efficient, who's playing really well, who's great in isolation, who can pass the ball, who can really shoot the ball from anywhere. He's a difference maker on this team. He's not the only one, though, because as I previewed, not necessarily previewed, but looked at last week, Chet Holmgren is probably the second best player already on the Thunder. In his last six games, he's shooting, excuse me, he's scoring 22 points per game. He's got 55.2% from the floor, 38.7% from three, shooting 82.8% from the free throw line, recording 8.8 rebounds, 2.8 assists, and 2.3 blocks. And he's only fouling 2.2 times per game. So he's still keeping his fouls down. As a rookie, that's incredible. This season, he's scoring 17.9 points per game, which is second among rookies, 2.2 blocks per game, fifth in the NBA still, and second among rookies. And then he also has six double-doubles, which is second among rookies behind Victor Wimbanyama of San Antonio. Now, how does that affect the Thunder as a team? Again, last week we talked about that not only the stretch of games that they were winning, but also their season as a whole, how they've been one of the better teams in the West with this hot start. Right now, the Thunder are recording 5.9 blocks per game, which is ninth in the NBA. They're shooting 49.3% from the floor, which is second in the NBA, 40.3% from three, which is first in the NBA, and they are the only team shooting above 40%. Again, They are shooting 85.4% from the free throw line, which is second in the NBA behind Philly's 85.6%. So only a 0.2% difference from being the top of the league from the free throw line. Easy points will always help you win games. As I say for the Mavs, if they improve their free throw shooting, they can win even more games. They're doing a good job now, but a team like the Thunder, this is what can separate you as the season goes along. Their shooting by zone, at least in the restricted area, again, has improved this season compared to last season. But they've fallen off just a little bit. Remember last season they scored, they shot 62.5% from the restricted area, which was last in the NBA. And this season they are shooting 64.9% from the restricted area, which is 19th in the NBA. Last week they were 18th by a smaller margin. They are missing some bunnies, some close shots at the rim, shots that you would think would go in from that distance. They're just not going in again. And so it's something that the Thunder can clean up to help them with these clutch losses where they can buy themselves a few points here and there. From the mid-range, they're shooting 46, excuse me, 47.6% which is actually second in the NBA. So they are really effective, and Shea has a lot to do with that. Chet is also a good shooter from any zone. So to know that you can shoot well from three, from the free throw line, from the mid-range, means that you have an excellent offense. If they improve right at the rim, though, this team is deadly. This team would be a scoring juggernaut. Their pace is at 100.76 possessions per game, and that is eighth in the NBA. And then this team is long and lanky. They steal the ball at a rate of 7.9 steals per game, which is 12th in the NBA. They score 19.5 points off turnovers, which is third in the NBA. And they have 15.6 deflections per game. So they can deflect passes with these long arms and so on and so forth. They are ninth in the NBA with those deflections. And facing a team like that means that your passing angles are little more narrow, difficult to actually complete assists. It can affect other teams' offensive maneuvers. And so as a defensive stat, deflections is a good category to look at, especially for a young and long team that has Chet Holmgren. So that's just something to take note of for the Thunder, something to look forward to as the season progresses. Now, what we'll transition to is the in-season tournament because we're now entering the knockout rounds and one of these three teams, spoiler, the New Orleans Pelicans, 
are playing in the quarterfinals. We'll also talk about upcoming topics and we'll break down some new story about Mark Cuban. Coming up next. All right, let's talk about the big story in the NBA that broke this week. Mark Cuban is selling a majority stake in the Dallas Mavericks. The first person to break this story was Mark Stein, who's a senior NBA insider and is featured from time to time on our Valley Sports Networks. Mark Cuban has been a primary stakeholder, according to this article, of the Mavericks for nearly a quarter century. Remember, he bought the team for about $280, $285 million in 2000. The Mavericks, according to Forbes, is now worth $4.5 billion. However, this majority share, this majority stake that's being sold to the Adelson family, who owns the Las Vegas Sands, is buying this stake, which would revalue the Mavs at $3.5 billion. Now, why would Mark Cuban take a billion-dollar pay cut in the valuation? He's retaining control of basketball operations, and he's not going to be the main, quote, governor of the Mavericks, but he's still going to be a governor of the Mavs but he can at least still take care of the basketball side and make sure that those operations stay fluid. They, they will still be good to go. There won't be so much of a change, so much of turnover as the Mavs are looking to progress over the next decade plus. So for him to still be along with the team, that will at least calm the minds of those of us who've only known of Mark Cuban as the owner since he bought the team from Ross Perot Jr. What this means, though, is that because he's partnering with Las Vegas Sands, they're a casino company, is that he's most likely trying to get Texas to legalize gambling. And that would open the door for a casino to be built in Texas. The closest casino to Texas is... In Oklahoma, there's Windstar and there's Choctaw, and you can go up to those resorts and gamble over in Oklahoma, but you can't do it in Texas. If Dallas becomes the first city to have that type of environment, remember the NBA and the NFL, they've, all, they've now gone all in on betting and sports betting and gambling and so on and so forth, that this could be another revenue boon for the state of Texas, for the city of Dallas, for the Mavericks as a whole. And he wants to move this team out of the American Airlines Center into a new arena. This arena is prospectively going to be built within a casino resort style area. Where that would be is uncertain. Could be possibly by the Trinity River. There's no set plan as to exactly where they have the land to pull off this kind of construction. But this is the first step to getting it done because if the league actually approves this sale, then that's the next step because why else would they make this move? Personally, I also see this as another revenue opportunity in the case that broadcasting money forces teams to take a hit. Because if, as Mark even said in All the Smoke, the podcast hosted by Mark, um, Matt Barnes, excuse me, Matt Barnes and Steven Jackson. He's worried about the TV deal that happens after this upcoming one. And so that would be around the time, let's say that there's a short TV deal that comes up after this current one expires in 2025. The Mavs are slated to only be in the American Airlines Center until 2031. So around that time, there's going to be some situation with how TV deals are constructed with the evolution of streaming. All that may force teams to take a hit financially. 
And if the Mavs can generate more revenue, if the city of Dallas and if Mark Cuban and the Adelson family can generate more revenue from the gambling side, that may help offset losses that come from broadcasting if there are any, depending on what deals get made. Now, that's way out in the future. It's merely speculation as to how all that is going to play out. But what we do know for sure is that there is an agreement. I believe it's a binding agreement now that the Adelson family, the Dumont family as well, are in with Mark Cuban to take a majority stake in the Mavericks. And if this deal goes through, it'll probably be done by the end of 2023. It would just take the owners of every team in the NBA to approve of that deal and the commissioner as well. So that's something to look out for because this is a major change in the city of Dallas. We're normally used to the same owner holding the same team for a long, long time, i.e. the Jones family for the Cowboys. So this is a bit of a change for everybody in the city, but something to look forward to. Next up, let's talk about the in-season tournament. Let's check out the group standings as I pull up who won each group. The Indiana Pacers won East Group A. The Milwaukee Bucks won East Group B. The Boston Celtics won East Group C. And the New York Knicks came out of Group B as the wildcard winner. And then in the West, the Lakers won Group A. The Pelicans won Group B, as I teased just a bit earlier. And the Sacramento Kings won Group C. So, that means, based on how the seeding has played out, the Pelicans will visit the Sacramento Kings for the quarterfinal match. If they somehow advance, somehow, they could advance. Let's, not, let's give them credit. If the Pels advance past the Kings, that means they'll go to Vegas for the semifinal, and that will count as a regular season game against the winner between the other West matchup between the Suns and the Lakers. And then that, if they win that game, then they will play a championship round for the, in, for the NBA Cup that doesn't count toward the regular season, but the winning team will have every player earn $500,000, which is a half a mil. I mean, wouldn't anyone love to have an extra $500,000? Why not, right? So let's preview these quarterfinal matchups on Monday, December 4th, the Celtics will play the Pacers at 7 30 PM Eastern. And the Pelicans will follow that game with the Pelicans Kings at 10 PM Eastern, 9 PM central. Now these games will be on TNT, but they will also be on local broadcast. So if you're in the new Orleans area, you can catch this game on Valley sports, new Orleans. And then Tuesday, December 5th, the Knicks will play the bucks at 7 30 PM Eastern and then that will be followed by the Suns and the Lakers at 10 p.m. Eastern. Both of those games will also be on TNT and most likely your local broadcasts. So next week, we'll recap week six, and we will do an in-season tournament recap because by this time next week, at least we'll know who is in the championship. And then the week after, we'll will be the end of the in-season tournament. At that point, we'll just look forward to the rest of the regular season going into the All-Star break. And then before we go, I want to, again, talk about the Cowboys, how they decimated the Washington Commanders 45-10. to They host Seattle this week on Thursday Night Football. I want to give a special shout-out to Deron Bland for breaking the NFL record with five pick sixes in a season. This never happened for a defensive back, for a defensive player. It's the first time we've ever seen it happen. Shout out to, to Jim Nance on that call. That was exciting to see while eating Thanksgiving dinner. So great job, Duran. Keep it up. Filling in for Trevon Diggs on that ACL tear. I mean, Bland has been on another level, and that Dallas defense is looking good. Hopefully they can get Shaq Leonard. Shout out Shaq Leonard. Come join the Cowboys. And this is going to be an, an important stretch for the Cowboys because after they play Seattle, they've got games against Buffalo, against Miami, against Philadelphia, and it's going to be a, a tough stretch against these teams that are 
supposed to be in the playoffs. If the Cowboys can beat them off, they can run the table. Whew. Got another thing coming in the playoffs. Now let's preview the national NBA tip-off. Thursday, November 30th, the Pacers will play the Heat at 7.30, 6.30 Central on NBA TV, followed by the Clippers and the Warriors at 10.9 Central on NBA TV. Friday, December 1st, the Sixers will play the Celtics at 7.30, 6.30 Central on ESPN, followed by the Nuggets and Suns at 10.9 Central on ESPN. And then Saturday, December 2nd, the Nuggets will play the Kings at 10.9 Central on NBA TV. And then for local television, so that we feature all of our teams, right? On Thursday, November 30th, the Lakers will play the Oklahoma City Thunder at 8-7 Central on Spectrum Sportsnet and Valley Sports Oklahoma. So watch us there. Friday, December 1st, the Grizzlies will, will play the Mavs at 7-30, 6-30 Central on Valley Sports Southeast in the Memphis area and Valley Sports Southwest in the Dallas area. And then the Spurs will play the Pelicans at 8-7 Central on Valley Sports Southwest in the San Antonio area and Valley Sports New Orleans. Then on Saturday, the Pelicans will play Saturday, December 2nd. The Pelicans will play the Bulls at 8-7 Central on Valley Sports New Orleans and NBC Sports Chicago. And the Thunder will play the Mavs at 9-8 Central on Valley Sports Oklahoma and Valley Sports Southwest. I'll actually be working both of those games at one time. So those of you in New Orleans and Oklahoma and the Southwest market, yeah, it's just going to be me on the graphic side. But we're going to make it work, and it's going to be a fun time. So join us there. If you've been watching and listening all the way through up until this point, not only in this episode, but throughout this season, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Keep watching. Keep listening. Keep telling your friends. This is something that I want to keep doing as the season goes along, potentially through the NBA Finals. So the more support I get, not only the better I'll feel, but the better it'll be for the NBA community as a whole and for broadcasting as a whole. So shout out to all you guys. Stay cool. All right, that's it for me. This has been The Control Room. I'm your host, Esrael Johannes, signing off.